Alistair Mori. Uh, good morning. I'm Jacob Lupona. I teach here in the Divinity School. I'm also in the Department of African and African American Studies. So it's quite an honor to be here and to uh, introduce our colleagues uh, from different uh, parts of the world uh, who have come to be part of this conversation. Uh, the last and I think the final uh, section is on the new intellectual uh, connection. And we're going to listen to four distinguished scholars. Um, I'm going to take some time or a few minutes to simply say one or two things about, about them. Uh, Mr. Uh, professor Robert uh, Pass is the, well, I think he's a professor. He's the founding director of the center at Maghrib uh, in Algeria. He received his PhD in political science uh, in 2021, and he has published extensively in different parts of uh, different aspects of Islam in uh, Algeria and uh, and Tunisia. So it's going to uh, be one of these, uh, uh, I think, one of the speakers. I should also say that he is the editor of the Global and Local in Algeria and Morocco, uh, the world uh, state and uh, the village, which was published by Rutledge in 2015. Um, uh, Dr. Ibrahim Zal is not here, but I think it would be the last speaker. Um, we'll use Skype to connect with him. Uh, he's the executive uh, director of Trust Africa, a pan-African foundation based in Dakar, Senegal. He used to be the director of Codestra, he did that for several years. I think that was one of the times when I met him uh, in, um, in, in Senegal. He will uh, join us uh, later, and I think he'll be the last uh, speaker. Uh, Madam uh, Fatima Harak is a historian and political scientist. Uh, she holds a degree, uh, a PhD from the University of uh, London, SOS. She's a research professor of the University of Mohammed of, of the Fifth Institute of African Studies uh, uh, in Morocco. She is an active member of the Pan-African Council for the Development of Social Sciences Research in Africa, which is uh, Codestra. Um, Dr. Mansou Kader is a professor at the High School of Economics and a research affiliate at the Center for Research in Social and cultural anthropology in uh, Oran, uh, Algeria. He also received his PhD in political science uh, from the University of Leon. He is the author of several, several books. Uh, um, several of these books, of course, uh, are known to all of us. They uh, deal with um, uh, issues relating to uh, the growth of Islam. Uh, in uh, the Sahel and in, um, in uh, North Africa. So uh, let me again welcome our speakers. Uh, each of you will have about 20 minutes to speak, and then uh, we should be able to have about 10, 20 minutes at the end of it to raise questions and to uh, discuss uh, your papers. Uh, the normal practice is that um, one is just about five minutes to end of the paper. I'll show my paper there. And so uh, I'm going to appeal to you to please uh, stick to this time. 
so that we can have enough time at the end of it to discuss your presentations. Thank you and welcome again. Donc, I present my excuse. My English is basic. I prefer speaking French. Je tiens à présenter mes sincères et vifs remerciements au professeur Ousmane Khan de nous avoir invités et au staff de la Divinity School d'avoir organisé ce colloque et facilité notre voyage. J'ai, durant hier et aujourd'hui, on a reçu aujourd'hui une charge de cavalerie ce matin. Ça ressemble à la cavalerie. Donc je parlerai lentement. Et je, je, et je verrai à respecter le temps. Euh, hier et aujourd'hui, nous avons écouté attentivement des, des interventions qui portaient sur des points précis, des confréries, des jihadistes, et c'est très riche. Et je tiens aujourd'hui, mon intérêt dans mon intervention est de cadrer, d'encadrer ce savoir et d'expliquer, de chercher des, ces perspectives de savoir l'érudition islamique, et de chercher d'expliquer un peu leur perspective historique. I uh, find and analyze the link of Islamic and secular knowledge and explain the historical perspective. Donc, euh, <coughs> évidemment, le, mon intervention s'inscrit dans ce que je peux appeler la remise en cause de l'épistémologie occidentale. Et bien, cette approche a été première initiée par Edouard Saïd, puis approfondie par Midembe, Apia et le professeur aussi Ousmane Kant, ce que j'ai trouvé dans, 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 dans ses écrits. Donc cette épistémologie occidentale a toujours nié le savoir africain, l'édition islamique entre autres, et essayer de séparer le Maghreb de l'Afrique occidentale. Donc, mon intervention, c'est que dans ce rapport, remettre en cause cette épistémologie et dire qu'il y avait un savoir africain, il y avait une illusion islamique, il y avait toujours des connexions entre l'Afrique du Sahel et le Maghreb. C'est le but de, ma, de, 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 mon, de mon intervention. Donc, ces connexions, en fait, elles apparaissent qu'elles n'existaient pas, mais toute connexion se construit et se déconstruit en fonction des, des, des contextes, et plus précisément en s'agissant des deux régions qui sont caractérisées par une sismicité structurelle, ce que j'appelle une sismicité structurelle, des conflits, crises, etc. Et l'intellectuel agit et interagit avec ce contexte et avec son environnement. Donc, en analysant ce, cette, 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 les connexions intellectuelles, j'ai pu dégager deux catégories d'intellectuels. Les laïcisants, les laïcisants et les, et les islamisants. Donc, en analysant, le professeur Osmar Khan distingue entre europhone et non-europhone. Il y a d'autres écrivains, comme je citais, comme Abdallah Al-Haroui, qui distinguent trois catégories. Mais toutefois, entre les deux catégories, la frontière n'est pas étanche, elle est perméable. Vous trouvez généralement un marxisme qui devient islamiste et vice-versa. Donc, c'est quelque chose de, de, de mouvant. Donc, en analysant 
le, le parcours de, historique de, de, de intellectuel, des deux intellectuels islamisants et, et laïcs qui vont d'ailleurs charpenter mon, mon intervention en deux parties, j'ai constaté que chez l'intellectuel islamisant, c'est mal traduit, c'est sécularisé, c'est l'Afrique anglophone qui est sécularisée. L'Afrique francophone, c'est laïcisé parce que ça provient du discours des acteurs politiques, dans la Constitution et généralement dans, dans, dans les revendications quotidiennes qu'on voit dans les discours de plusieurs acteurs. Donc, j'ai constaté que chez l'intellectuel laïcisant, durant tout ça, dans sa trajectoire, il est parti de l'engagement qui a unifié ses rangs vers la dispersion dans la période postcoloniale. Contrairement à l'intellectuel laïcisant, l'intellectuel islamisant est parti de la marche, il a été ostracisé vers la tentation hégémonique où il veut dominer l'espace. J'essaierai devant vous d'expliquer ces deux parcours, leur trajectoire et leur représentation. Donc, le, dans le premier axe, qui est l'intellectuel laïcisant de l'engagement la, de et les dispersions, il y a deux actes. Il y a premièrement son parcours mouvementé. Et à la fin du parcours mouvementé, il a abouti à ce que j'appelle une vision éclatée, l'émiettement de la pensée de, 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 de l'intellectuel laïcisant. Dans le, 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 le parcours mouvementé, premièrement, c'est le panafricanisme qui a permis d'unifier l'intellectuel maghrébin subsaharien et de l'Afrique Ça a commencé dans les débuts avec le congrès de Chicago, c'était les premières idées, donc vous avez le congrès qui a pu dégager les premières... C'était des sens culturalistes. Il y avait Blyden, il y avait Marcus Gavet, et puis, entre les deux guerres, le mouvement commençait à se radicaliser, de Londres, mais surtout à Paris, où le Parti communiste français a créé l'intercolonial, où se trouvait... Les, les anciens immigrés, les syndicalistes maghrébins et subsahariens et les étudiants, ils ont inscrit dans l'ordre du jour l'émancipation des peuples. Deux ans après, à Bruxelles, sous impulsion du Comintern, donc ça a commencé, ça a marqué un temps de la radicalisation où s'est inscrit l'émancipation des peuples et la, les luttes de libération. Ces trois pas ont abouti au congrès de Manchester, évidemment, Manchester, où on trouve. Nkrumah euh, et d'autres jeunes leaders qui, ont, qui, vont, qui vont un peu <coughs> qui vont encadrer et euh, prendre en charge ces revendications et les transporter en Afrique. En Afrique, c'est l'ère de Nkrumah, bien sûr. Les premiers États indépendants n'ont cessé d'aider les autres des mouvements de libération. Deux, deux, trois, il y a, on, on constate des rencontres. Alors, cette connexion, elle, elle a été soudée et consolidée par des rencontres et les supports médiatiques. Il y a trois rencontres. La rencontre première de Koumazi, et la celle d'Akra. Mais c'est deux rencontres, puis de Brazzaville, de Casablanca. Mais ces rencontres-là ont permis, en reléguant ce plan, les clivages culturels. On va constater que ces clivages vont ressurgir dans la période postcoloniale et qui va diviser un peu le panafricanisme et, et concourir à, à son échec. Donc, donc, ça c'est rencontre, à part ces rencontres de Koumazi et d'Akra, où est inscrite la lutte de, de, de libération, des mouvements d'encouragement de libération, et l'Afrique revient aux Africains, donc les Africains, c'était les élites laïcisées, 
qui ont été, qui ont été formés dans les écoles, dans les écoles, l'école occidentale. Dans, dans le support médiatique, il y en a beaucoup, mais je cite deux. Présence africaine, qui est très ancienne, qui était à l'origine de deux forums, celui de Paris et de Rome, et pour l'anecdote, durant de Rome, les Français à l'époque ont mis l'embargo pour éviter que la délégation algérienne y participe. Il y avait il y a toute une littérature abondante. Et le deuxième journal, c'était Moujahid. Moujahid, c'était le journal du FLN, donc en 56, il a été diffusé, il avait l'ambassadeur France Fanon qui était à Accra, jouait un rôle important dans les écrits, dans les diffusions de savoir, et un peu parler et aborder tout ce qui se passe en Afrique dans une trajectoire révolutionnaire. Après ces supports, donc, vint la période postcoloniale. Donc, les premières élites qui étaient unies dans, dans l'idée panafricaniste se trouvaient au pouvoir. Donc, évidemment, on considère, c est, c est, ils, ont, ils ont été aidés par la bipolarité, le mouvement non, non aligné et le tiers-mondisme triomphant. Donc, simplement, il y a, il y a, toutefois, ces élites-là ont marginalisé les autres. On marginalisait plutôt l'islamisme. l'islamisme, et qui va prendre un jour sa revanche. Donc, toute, euh, cette période-là ne va pas durer longtemps. Son désenchantement, le désenchantement de l'intellectualisation a commencé au niveau, à la fin des années 70, avec les crises, les crises des États, les crises économiques, la crise pétrolière, etc. Donc, le durcissement des régimes répressifs, la montée des exprimistes, L'instabilité politique la et la focalisation de l'intelligence du, du Maghreb sur le Moyen-Orient et, et le conflit israélo-palestinien. Donc vous avez cette intelligence qui était soudée avec les Africains et commence à, à, à s'intéresser au, 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 au Moyen-Orient. Ce bilan-là a été fait, donc on ne peut parler de cette rupture puisque l'arabisme montant a cassé cette connexion qui était à la base, donc l'arabisation, les Algériens, Maghrébins, Tunisiens, Libyens, s'intéressaient plus à ce qui se passe au Moyen-Orient, en Afrique. Passé ces crises, le Maghreb, on commence à s'intéresser à l'Afrique subsaharienne, ce que je peux appeler moi le renouveau. Alors le renouveau, il y a des connexions balbutiantes, on la voit dans, dans première l'octroi des bourses, L'Algérie a octroyé en, à titre d'exemple 1990-748 qui est minime, mais aujourd'hui elle est arrivée à 10 000. Elle est dépassée par le Maroc qui octroie à peu près 14 000 à 16 000 bourses. Donc, sur le plan institutionnel, nous avons deux organismes, le CRASC, dont je fais partie, et le SEMA. Je laisse le soin à mon ami Bob, donc mon concitoyen David, qui va parler de SEMA. Donc, au sujet du CRASC, cette institution est conventionnée avec le, le CODISRIA. Il existe une, la ARB, l'Africa Review Book, dont, dont je, je coordonne l'édition. Elle concerne, elle, elle, elle édite, elle publie toutes les, les recensions, c'est-à-dire les comptes rendus concernant les livres et qui parlent un peu de tous les domaines. Autre institution, 
Les Algériens ont prévu l'esprit Panaf. L'esprit Panaf, c'est un pavillon réservé aux Africains. Chaque salon du livre d'Alger, qui compte d'octobre euh, au début de novembre, et il ouvre la voie à tous les Africains écrivains ici de venir exposer le, le, le livre et donner des conférences. Et puis, il y a une édition qui ici à Alger, l'édition Tombouctou, qui aide l'édition africaine. Voilà ce qui est le renouveau. On compte, donc, d'autres... Évidemment, il y a d'autres domaines sécuritaires où les États ensemble collaborent. Et... Donc, mais on ne peut pas parler ainsi, on ne peut pas dire que c'est une condition intellectuelle. C'est est, est institutionnel. Donc, cette trajectoire qui a, qui a commencé de l'engagement jusqu'à jusqu la dispersion, elle, est, elle provient d'une vision éclatée ou ce que j'appelle l'échec de l'intellectuel laïcisant. Alors pourquoi on parle maintenant de l'échec et de la vision éclatée je vais, je vais aborder trois points. Premièrement, il y a des approches distanciées. À la base, durant la période coloniale, il y avait des approches. Je citerai deux, qui ont de grandes personnalités, mais ils avaient des divisions différentes. Cheikh Antadiop et Léopold Sangor. Dans son ouvrage, de personnalités hors pair, Fondement économique culturel d'un État fédéral d'Afrique noire, chez, chez Antadio, des fournitures africaines préconisent l'établissement d'un État fédéral. Voilà. L'État fédéral, il prend l'unité culturelle en, en, de l'Afrique noire en excluant l'Afrique blanche. Voilà. Déjà, il sépare les deux affaires du Maghreb. Léopold Sangor parle autre chose, il dit, je cite, j'ai souvent défini l'africanité, j'ai souvent défini l'Afrique comme la symbiose complémentaire des valeurs de l'arbitre et de la négritude. Je vous dis dans une première phase, essayez de démontrer que cette symbiose par métissage essaie d'abord réaliser au niveau des races et des ethnies. Voilà les biais, les travers. Les tra les travers. Donc c'est un travail pan-africain pan de l'unité. Revendication de la négritude, elle a conduit à une impasse. Elle fut critiquée par, comme un instrument idéologique pour déposséder les Africains de leur culture et préparer le terrain à une, occidentalisation, à une occidentalisation de la société. À des approches différenciées, nous avons le deuxième point, le positionnement idéologique, qui a un peu divisé les laïcisants. Marxistes et nationalistes, quand ils étaient contre les islamistes. Au Maghreb, on disait les arabisants, les islamistes, les sociodémocrates et les socialistes. Mais de toutes ces catégories, voilà. Mais de toutes ces catégories, c'est l'acteur marxisant qui domine, qui a dominé l'espace, le discours et est présent dans la sphère politique. Conséquence, le compartimentage des élites, l'islamisant et marxisant, éloignement de l'intellectuel maghrébin du champ africain, donc c'est l'Arabie, l'Arabie, il s'est focalisé sur, sur le monde arabe et montée du nationalisme, d'où aveuglement de l'intelligentsia. Généralement, le nationalisme, les nationalistes, c'est eux, comme disait Bénédicte Ederson, c'est eux qui créent la nation et conduit euh, irréversiblement à l'aveuglement. Dans ce cadre, France Fanon note, note la conscience nationale, au lieu d'être la cristallisation coordonnée des aspirations les plus intimes de l'ensemble du peuple, au lieu d'être le produit immédiat le plus papa de la mobilisation populaire, ne sera en tout état de cause qu'une forme sans contenu fragile, grossière. 
Les failles que l'on y découvre expliquent amplement la facilité avec laquelle, dans les jeunes pays indépendants, on passe de la nation à l'ethnie, de l'État à la tribu. Là, c'est François. Ainsi, on s'engage inconsciemment ou naïvement dans la négrification et l'arabisation. L'intellectuel laïcisant sombre dans l'évanescence et au retour désespérant du chauvinisme. Le deux, troisième pas, troisième point, ce que j'appelle la conscience malheureuse et éliettement la pensée. Quatre, le, 1980, c'est le début de la phase désenchantement, échec du projet national, de l'État postcolonial. Cette phase fut suivie par le durcissement des régimes, l'emprisonnement des intellectuels, l'exil forgé et l'exil forcé et silence, le silence mortifère. Crise économique et sociale, crise de légitimité, instabilité politique, etc. Donc il revient à Hegel d'avoir défini, forgé le concept de conscience, conscience, euh, conscience, conscience la conscience malheureuse. Donc il l'a défini comme le déchirement entre la raison et l'intuition de l'individu et son être et son environnement. Donc nous avons deux grands auteurs qui représentent ce déchirement, cette conscience malheureuse. Je citerai par exemple une belle phrase de Mamadou Diouf. Il dit que c'est une victime, l'intellectuel laïcien est une victime expiatoire, consensuelle et rebelle. Cette définition diachronique, révélatrice du déchirement, est affirmée par la dichotomie empruntée à Gramsci qu'il opère entre intellectuel traditionnel, traditionnel et intellectuel moderne. Mais je crois que, je, je pense que Achille Mbé, c'est le seul qui exprime ce déchirement de l'être. Il dit, se référant à l'expression de Michel Certeau, le philosophe français, le malheur généalogique. Il dit, celui-là, celui-là, qui nous fait naître et grandir quelque part et nous inscrit, que nous le voulions ou non, dans une lignée qui nous est possible ni de choisir, ni vraiment de légitimer, ni de séparer. A rejoint chez nous parfois le fatalisme, disait Mektou. Voilà. Cette problématique de la conscience malheureuse nous renvoie à la lutte pour la reconnaissance. Ce concept était développé par Axel Honneur dans la reconnaissance et le mépris. Et c'est un problème qu'il faut actualiser. Tout, 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 tout le travail d'Axel Honneur qui nous offre des clés pour comprendre certaines réalités, notamment dans les pays du Sud. Je viens au deuxième, 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 deuxième axe, l'intégrité islamisante, la ce que j'intitule de la marginalisation à la tentation hégémonique. Eh bien, l'intégrité islamisante a profité de ce que j'appelle temps, le temps long et la sédimentation de l'islamisation de l'Afrique subsaharienne. Le temps long, il nous renvoie à Brodel. Donc, effectivement, cette période de l'érudition islamique qui s'est propagée en islam a profité parce que les Occidentaux étaient accaparés, happés par la découverte de l'Amérique. Ils ont laissé ça tranquille. Donc, ce qui fait qu'on explique un peu comment l'islamisation de l'Afrique s'est faite calme, lentement et sans heure, et d'une manière pacifique. Donc, des origines à la colonisation, donc on cite le début, billet soudain, ce qu'on appelle. Il y avait les Berbères, Masouda, Goudala et Lemtuna, et puis il y avait les Almoravides, qui sont venus 
ils ont laissé leur empreinte d'un islam rigoriste. Et puis après, il y avait les Saadiens. Les Saadiens, c'est autre chose. C'était, ils étaient intéressés plutôt par l'or, de l'opinion de Sangal. Mais c'est les Amouades qui ont travaillé l'islamisation. Vingt ans précisément, les, les oulémas, les oulémas, comme je citais Abdelkirim Marili, qui était conseiller de, de Aspia de Sangal, il a été aussi à Canon, il a construit une mosquée, et dans les disciples qui se revendiquent des travaux de, 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 de Marili, c'est Danfodio. Donc, euh, mais, alors, l'intellectuel laïcisant, islamisant, a été marginalisé, a été marginalisé, a été marginalisé par la période coloniale, il va prendre la revanche quelque part. Alors, dans ce cadre, marginal de l'acteur islamisant, effet de la culture occidentale sur les intellectuels qui étaient au pouvoir, il avait peut-être ignoré que la culture était un instrument redoutable de la domination culturelle. Je cite Karl Osman citant Mudembe. Il affirme Même pendant la période postcoloniale, ni les africanistes, ni les africains prenant l'authenticité de l'Afrique, encore moins les afrocentistes, n'ont su s'affranchir des représentations schématiques et simplificatrices à l'extrême de l'Afrique, telles que l'a inventé l'ordre d'épistémologie occidentale. Voilà, Donc, euh, je vais vite. Je vais vite. Donc, euh, et puis. L'islamisation a profité d'un contexte géopolitique favorable à partir de l'année 60 de la crise de la guerre israélo-palestinienne où l'Arabie saoudite a découvert l'islam comme un instrument géopolitique. Voilà, tout. Donc il y avait à l'époque, il y avait un terreau qui était préparé à l'époque, disséminé. Donc, ce, cela me renvoie au deuxième point, ce que j'appelle la prédisposition religieuse et la présentation du monde. Donc, au sujet de la représentation du monde de, 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 de l'intellectuel sinon, il y a, il faut apprêter ce, ce concept à Bourdieu, l'habitus religieux. Donc, l'enracinement de l'islam, on a fait dire, représentation, certes, et unifiée du monde, les rudiments marchands, islamisation sans heure pacifique, les Africains ont trouvé dans l'islam une source de leur libération et un moyen de recouvrement de leur dignité. Khotmet al-Wadar du prophète, bien s'applique bien. Rejet des valeurs occidentales, rôle de l'édition El-Makili, Don Fodio, Cheikh Brahim Niaz, tous ont travaillé dans cette édition continue, visible, etc. Donc, maintenant, malheureusement, donc, deux acteurs, on a, on a deux acteurs dans l'espace, on a la conception du monde djihadiste, je dirais, je dirais un mot, donc ce, la seule connexion parfaite, on a trouvé les djihadistes, dans tous les groupes, Akmi, Ansar, Lakmi, Donc, que ce soit ces l'ACMI ou Ansar de Moujaou, vous trouvez les Burkinabés et les Algériens, c'est une connexion parfaite parce qu'ils représentent, ils, ils sont soudés par la même représentation du monde, ils partagent les mêmes vérités coraniques. Par rapport à cet acteur, il y a l'acteur des confréries, moins peut-être hégémonique dans certains pays, parce qu'ils sont contrôlés par l'État, etc. Et il domine ces deux acteurs actuellement qui dominent l'espace public, soit au Maghreb, soit au Sahel. Donc, pour conclure, je vais lire ma conclusion. Excusez-moi, professeur, d'avoir grignoté un peu de temps. Alors, de, de l'étude des trajectoires et des représentations des intellectuels maghrébins et subsahariens, 
Il ressort que les connexions ont toujours été caractérisées par des continuités et des discontinuités. S'il apparaît que leur développement et leurs perspectives ont été bloqués par l'État national, incapable de garantir la démocratisation de la vie publique, à moins qu'il les promeuve dans un dessin politique ou géopolitique, cela ne signifie nullement qu'il est de le seul responsable de la situation de l'intérêt laïcisant ou islamisant soit-il. Supportant mal sa condition dans une société traversée par des conflits, traversée par des conflits latents et n'arrivant pas, pas à rompre avec les relents de la doxa occidentale, l'intellectuel africain cherche sa voie de libération dans la modernité et la tradition. La sécularisation et la prénonce de la religion. Le pouvoir est une société frappée de léthargie, le sacrifice et l'exil. Devant ces questionnements existentiels, le choix est difficile à prendre. Néanmoins, cela permet de tourmenter sa conscience jusqu'à l'amener à transcender le réel et dégager une pensée du Sud à même de répondre aux profondes pulsations de la société et aux soupirs des damnés de la terre. Si tout intellectuel devait réfléchir à libérer les Africains de leur tourment, le pari, le pari d'une pensée libre et originale peut être gagné. S'accrocher à une image d'épinal du progrès, telle que nous a été dessinée ailleurs, loin de nos sables brûlants, ou regarder toujours en arrière, vers un temps à jamais révolu, c'est ignorer les dynamiques historiques des sociétés africaines et baliser nos déserts qui nous, sont, qui nous ont longtemps habités. De ces déductions, la question de la connexion peut paraître subsidiaire si les intellectuels maghrébins subsahariens ne sont pas habités par la même angoisse existentielle et n'assument pas une responsabilité historique. Au-delà de sa conscience et de sa mission consubstantielle à son essence de producteur de savoir et de sens, l'intellectuel africain respirant le même air vicié, pataugeant dans la même réalité complexe et subissant le même temps, un temps lourd, le temps des États fragiles, généalogiquement voués à l'autoritarisme et le temps des sociétés meurtries et interpellées pour porter à l'échelle universelle la condition de l'homme africain. Malraux disait dans un bon discours que l'Afrique est au cœur de l'histoire universelle par rapport à Sarko. Dans cette optique, la connexion peut nous paraître une conséquence. Dans une mondialisation qui s'apparente plus, plus à une vague monothéiste, rapproche les populations, sans distinction de nationalité, de race et de religion, et où les idées circulent à une vitesse lumière, ne faut-il pas penser à une connexion intellectuelle facilitée par une communauté, une communauté virtuelle éloigné dans une première étape des lourdeurs bureaucratiques des pouvoirs nationaux et le contrôle du savoir avant que l'intellectuel africain n'arrache la place qui lui est siée dans la société. Je vous remercie. First of all, let me, uh, in my turn, uh, thank uh, Rosman and Divinity School for their kind invitation and uh, for the opportunity they have uh, given me to uh, attend this conference um, and meet uh, uh, a beautiful bouquet of young scholars, brilliant and eminent young scholars. I, I think it was refreshing and uh, you know, I gained some years <laughs> uh, by mingling with this, uh, the younger generations uh, of scholars who are working Uh, on, 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 on this uh, region from the prism uh, uh, that we have tried to defend at the Institute of African Studies, that is, uh, which is a prism that defies the area studies, uh, uh, the Western Area Studies uh, uh, division. 
so I, I'm really very happy to be here, and I've learned a lot. <laughs> um, my presentation is very modest. It's uh, on the research that uh, on Moroccan-African relations that has been done at the Institute of African Studies, created uh, in the 1980s. So I, I adapt, uh, I adopt myself, adapt myself completely to the chronology uh, presented by uh, my brother Mansour. Uh, but uh, the Institute of African Studies was created in a very particular moment. Uh, um, it was created in the 1980s. We are uh, on the morrow of uh, uh, the Iranian Revolution and at the eve of the fall of the Berlin Wall. So we are at a very uh, important uh, transition in our world, not unlike the transitions that we are, uh, that we are living uh, today. Um, so uh, the, the, the questions that were uh, asked then, uh, uh, some of them are still being, uh, uh, being asked today. So uh, uh, let me uh, say a platitude. Huh? which has been really confirmed uh, uh, during this, uh, these two days, these very rich two days, about the relations between the Maghreb and West Africa and uh, Western Bilad Sudan. Which, uh, these relations which are characterized uh, by they being uh, based on a common religious, cultural, and intellectual legacy. Secondly, there being relations of reciprocity, relations, relations of mutual exchange and, and interaction. There being secular, that is very old. I mean, uh, they, they go, they are there, they are uh, there before Islam. Of course, Islam is, has done something, has brought something to, to the regions, but they are there uh, forever. So they are historic, they are uh, old, profound, but they are also very vibrant, they are changing. Uh, as for the Moroccan-African relations, I think we, we, in Morocco we like to think that we have very special relations mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, with Western Africa. Uh, we are still ruled by a Sherifian dynasty. <laughs> uh, we are a nation state today, but uh, we are still ruled by uh, a Sherifian uh, king, which is something that is very special. So let me just... Uh, tell you about a little story which, uh, which is uh, remembered in Morocco very vividly. Uh, it's a very symbolic uh, story, say la petite histoire. Uh, when uh, King Mohammed V, uh, one of the actors of the Casablanca group, uh, uh, was exiled uh, to Madagascar in 1953 because he, uh, he banded with the nationalist movement, uh, he received very few visits in his exile. It was really limited. But among the many visits, of, 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 among the visits that are most remembered uh, in Morocco, is uh, the visit that he received from uh, uh, Sheikh Ibrahim Yes. That's something very, very, very special. Uh, and uh, uh, it's not only Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Ibrahim Yes, the person, the, the, uh, the, the wali, etc., but it's also the followers and the thousands and hundreds and tens of thousands of followers that he had uh, throughout uh, West Africa. So uh, it's, it's a symbolic uh, kind of uh, uh, action. Uh, 
So the, the uh, relations between uh, 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 Morocco and uh, Western Africa uh, has, it's not only a relation of elites, huh? a relation between the king and the sheikh, but it's also, it has a popular dimension. And because it has that popular dimension, it has never been weakened, uh, neither by colonialism, nor by the establishment of border states, uh, nor by the ideological drifts of the last 70 years, uh, nor by the various plans to isolate Morocco from its African roots uh, or its African depths, which started in the 16th century and which continue until today. So the successive uh, kings of uh, independent Morocco carried on with uh, their endeavor to preserve and nurture these relations and to cultivate religious, cultural, and intellectual links through various means. Uh, the building of, of mosques, uh, offering of scholarships uh, for, uh, for all, to all uh, African countries for training uh, students and cadre in various scientific and technical disciplines, hajj gifts, uh, uh, books for libraries, uh, Qur'ans for mosques, whatever. Uh, but also the establishment of associations, associations of ulama, associations of students, uh, uh, etc. Uh, and one of the, also the traditions that has been started under Hassan II was the invitation to take part in the Ramadan, uh, um, the Ramadan uh, uh, lectures, uh, uh, which are presided over by the king, and which are transmitted directly uh, to on national television. That's a very big event that's watched throughout Morocco. So uh, the creation of the Institute of African Studies is, is, uh, goes also within uh, this fr framework. Uh, it's true that uh, the, the creation of the institute comes uh, uh, following Morocco's walking out <laughs> very bruyamment <laughs> from the OAU <laughs> uh, in 1984, uh, uh, but uh, over the question of Western Sahara still uh, with us uh, today. But uh, there is also another petite histoire for the creation of, uh, of the Institute. It was in 1985, during one of these Ramadan uh, lectures, uh, 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 the, the Alim uh, from Mali, uh, Sheikh Ali Diallo, gave a lecture on the challenges facing the Muslim world and, fa and facing uh, Islam in Africa in particular. Uh, and he concluded, uh, remember the context, 85, we are you know, in, in this very, uh, very important context. Uh, and he concluded his uh, lecture by calling on Morocco to revitalize, uh, he used the to revitalize the sec its secular engagement vis-à-vis -vis Africa. When Sheikh Diallo finished his uh, lecture, and before the king concludes the, the, the session uh, dedicated to this lecture, he responded immediately to Sheikh Diallo by calling, looking at the government and saying, uh, 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 directing uh, you know, uh, the government to create uh, 
a chair for the study of the common Moroccan African heritage at the University of Mohadim V. This was in 1985. The institute will be created by royal decree in 1987 uh, following this. Uh, so this is the kind of uh, a very um, subtle, subtle kind of relations that uh, uh, that uh, uh, links um, Morocco uh, and, and, and Moroccan kings, if you like, uh, also to to, to uh, uh, the leaders, to the elites, and to the people of Western Africa. Uh, this is. Uh, there ensured, of course, the creation of the institutes, as I said. The institute was created, and within the institute, there was a chair dedicated to the study of the, uh, the common Moroccan African heritage. The, the, the second lecturer at this uh, chair, as, uh, uh, within the, the chair, was John Hanwick, uh, who, who spoke about the intellectual relations, uh, uh, and he's an expert in, in that uh, by... by uh, by the uh, uh, recognition of everybody. So he, he summarized uh, uh, his findings about Moroccan-African relations or Maghrebian-African relations. We can generalize that, actually. Uh, first of all, the evidence of human interaction associated uh, and uh, association and intermingling between the populations of Northern Sub-Saharan Africa preceded the arrival of Islam but became more active and dynamic during the Islamic era. Secondly, that during the Islamic era, there were relations of reciprocal and mutually beneficial trade, uh, uh, trade and functioned through well-trodden roads, punctuated with renowned cities around, uh, uh, and which became centers of learning and around which empires were developed and thrived. Third, with the exception of the uh, uh, Lamtuna conquest of Sijil Massa in the 11th century and the Saadi conquest of Songhai in the 17th, 16th century, diplomacy prevailed over war in these relations. Fourth, cultural borrowings, <coughs> calligraphy, music, trance, decorative arts, etc., were adapted to local ethic and aesthetic, and I use your, and I use your form, the formula you, you used yesterday. Fifth, Actors in these cultural and intellectual exchanges, uh, which varied from merchants, jurists, judges, Sufis, and just ordinary people, came from the north. As they come from the, from the south, we have uh, ma many renowned names. We have Sahili, Tijani, Ahmed Bendris uh, from the north, if you like. But we have Al Balbali, Al Kainimi, Ahmed Baba from the south, and, and the list is endless. So it's uh, from the womb of these exchanges that the common religious and intellectual foundations of Islam in, West, in the Western Muslim uh, uh, world, uh, this part of the Islamic world which englobed Al-Andalus, uh, uh, Northern and Western Africa, it's uh, from this womb that uh, this intellectual tradition was born, uh, namely uh, and we have talked about this morning the Ash'ari dogma, the, uh, the Maliki school of jurisprudence, and the Sunni uh, mysticism uh, uh, of Al-Junaid. Uh, so uh, these foundations uh, are, are uh, these foundations of uh, these intellectual uh, foundations of Islam in Africa and their significance today is, is, has to be underlined today. 
the Ash'ari dogma, as, as you know, implies separation between faith and action, meaning that a Muslim who testifies to the unicity of God and the prophecy of Muhammad may not be uh, excommunicated. And that's a, a reply to, to takfir. Uh, the Maliki school of jurisprudence, uh, which prevails in, in this area until today, uh, is characterized, prevails, but it's not unique today. Uh, there, are, there have been uh, uh, the introduction of new, uh, uh, of, of new uh, schools and new doctrines. The Maliki school of jurisprudence, which prevailed in the, in the past in, in, in uh, this Western Islamic world, is characterized by three features, uh, which are of very important political, uh, of political importance today. First, a methodology of extracting laws from foundation texts. And this answers a little bit the question of ijtihad. Second, the importance attached to public interest. Uh, in the elaboration of the laws. And this is important for the legality, the legitimacy, and the applicability <coughs> of the laws. Third, the respect of local traditions, customs. And this is a means of integrating local custom, customary law, and opposing uh, uh, its being taxed uh, as bid'as. And, and uh, this, this is... This is what was, had led many Muslims from other parts of the Muslim world to, to, to look upon Islam in this part of the world as being syncretic or whatever. Uh, but uh, uh, we know our syncretism. So uh, <laughs> the third foundation of Islam in North Africa, and we have talked about it a lot uh, during this conference, is uh, the Sunni spiritual path of Al-Junaid and which spread, uh, in which the Maghreb actually played, uh, played a very important role in its spread, starting with the Shadiliya in the 13th century and ending with the Tijaniya and the Idrisiya in the 18th and 19th century. A, a brand of Sufism that is distinguished by its moral character and by its extraordinary capacity for mobile, popular mobilizations. And we've seen some pictures which still stand in stand in, uh, today in my head. Uh, so it is, on, uh, it, is, uh, it is thinking about these foundations of secular, these uh, foundations of uh, the intellectual tradition uh, uh, that link West Africa to the Maghreb that Sheikh Diello, I think, relied when he called, when he, he called for the revitalization of Moroccan engagement <coughs> in Africa. Uh, and. Uh, uh, the mobilization of this same trilogy, trilogy, trilogy uh, today is still necessary in order to face up to uh, the threat of uh, uh, takfiris and jihadis, and uh, this is one of the uh, one of the um, <coughs> uh, missions that uh, the, the Moroccan Ministry of Islamic and uh, Waqf and Islamic Affairs is really looking after. Uh, uh, in cooperation with uh, uh, with uh, our our uh, brothers in uh, uh, in northern and western Africa, so the institute of I, now I move all along. <laughs> I just started my my, my lecture. Now I, I'll try I try to <clears throat> right I'll try to make it as short as possible. The institute 
as I said, centered essentially on the study of the common Moroccan African heritage, which is a big, uh, a big mission, uh, um, uh, which covers uh, all sorts of, uh, of, of headings. Uh, the institute was not given a lot of means, meaning financial means, to really uh, um, uh, do its, uh, uh, to, to, to realize its mission. But it uh, endeavored to promote research in Africa in the humanities and social sciences, organize seminars and conferences uh, uh, to which, uh, you know, participants came from, from Morocco, Africa, and the rest of the world. Um, establish relations of cooperations with national and international uh, bodies pursuing the same objective. Uh, management of a special library, specialized library, the only special uh, African library, uh, Africanist library, if you like, in Morocco, and a uh, you know, big program of publications uh, uh, for which the Institute is very proud. Uh, the subject matter, uh, we have talked about it. Uh, it was started modestly with, with scholars coming essentially from the humanities. Uh, it was directed uh, mostly by historians until, until 2008 when a geographer, a human geographer, finally was elected uh, to, to direct the institute. It has done at the, at the, uh, during its first, uh, let's say, uh, 10 or 15 years, uh, mostly historic research, uh, but uh, 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 has also uh, created uh, multi, uh, multidisciplinary research units uh, dealing with religious dynamics, dealing with development issues, dealing with geopolitics, three, uh, three uh, research units which are still functioning. And it was able to uh, uh, produce a large uh, number of publications, around 200 uh, or 250 titles until now, distributed on a range of series, conferences, uh, uh, <coughs> symposia, research, texts and documents, uh, dictionaries and encyclopedia, translations, literature, etc., and the review and a newsletter. Uh, the, the, the publications, uh, if we if we try to, uh, uh, among the publications, I am sure that uh, 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 during the, the first half of, of the life of the Institute, uh, up until 2008, publications of uh, the Institute included uh, essentially uh, uh, editions, translations of numerous Arabic manuscripts attesting to the human linguistic and cultural relations across the Sahara. We had pilgrimage journeys, many pilgrimage journeys published. Well, let's see, even Mauritanians were very present, uh, heavily present in that. Uh, Ibn al-Qadi, uh, al-Futi, Fatawa, among which uh, Fatawa's, uh, Fatwa Ahmed Baba, uh, Fatwa of Ibn al-Qadi, biographies of major ulama of North and West Africa, which don't appear, which didn't appear in Ahmed Rava's al-Ibtihaj, uh, biographies of Sufi sheikhs, such as Ahmed bin Dris, uh, of Faiz enigmatic saint, Ahmed Baba and Timbukti's major work, Tuhfat al-Fudala, in addition to uh, uh, about uh, 50 conferences of the Moroccan African uh, Heritage uh, uh, Chair 
given by eminent scholars, uh, Africanist scholars from Africa and from around the world, and it, it, it's through, through them that we that the institute really opened on on the Africanist uh, uh, international Africanist communities topics varying from tasawwuf literature history languages music calligraphy decorative arts so it really covers there are small small pamphlets but uh, by really eminent researchers and uh, and they are very well um, very much sought after by uh, researchers uh, So uh, the, uh, something happened starting uh, 2008, uh, which I consider as the second phase of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, the history of the Institute of Africans. I forgot to mention that uh, 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 relations between, um, between uh, the Institute of African Studies and Codestria were also uh, developed. Uh, uh, and uh, for the first time, there was this great opening on the community of scholars, African scholars, uh, uh, working also on the, uh, the social uh, history uh, of, of Africa. Uh, so uh, during the second period, uh, which started uh, <coughs> approximately around 2008, uh, Two, two big developments uh, had occurred, both at the level of uh, at the national level, on the Moroccan level, and at the uh, level of the IAS. First of all, uh, at the national level, uh, this period is characterized by a, a clear, uh, what we can call a pivot <laughs> uh, towards uh, towards Africa taken by the present king, Mohammed VI, and the inauguration of a vigorous economic and religious diplomacy in Africa. Uh, this strategic option of Morocco was conducive to the uh, proliferation of institutes, uh, centers, and think tanks, both public and private, Moroccan and non-Moroccan, <coughs> dedicated to, to the study of all things African and geared towards producing uh, policy uh, recommendations, uh, essentially both for the politicians and for the business community. There followed also uh, the creation of African studies programs within the universities, the emergence, uh, 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 and that's something uh, uh, that, that's very new. The second development, which also uh, comes, uh, follows in this direction was uh, 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 more geographical concentration of the research at the Institute on the Sahara uh, and the Sahel, more implications uh, of, uh, uh, of, of, of uh, foreign uh, uh, scholars in the work of the Institute, more collaboration and for the first time with the French, the French had having, be, having boycotted the Institute for the first, for during its first uh, uh, years, up until the death of Jean de Vis, uh, uh, who never accepted to come and visit uh, uh, the institute, up until then, you know, the French had really uh, considered that uh, it was an affront to to create uh, an institute of African studies when you could study African studies at the, uh, you know, in Paris. Uh, 
so, uh, so we had to wait for, for, for Jean de Vis to, uh, to, 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 to die. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to die, and with him, the, the, the colonialist school, if you like, before the, the French could dare come uh, and join uh, and, and work with the Institute. Uh, in the meantime, we had, uh, we had uh, found uh, uh, great, uh, we had opened up on uh, the Anglo-American school, African school through the good offices of John Hanwick and, uh, and others. But John Hanwick was the sheikh <laughs> uh, who really opened up uh, and who introduced us into uh, ASA. And, uh, and through ASA, uh, we were very active in the development of Saharan Studies Association within the ASA. So we have been there when the ASA uh, created the Saharan Studies uh, Association. So uh, uh, instead of the French connection, we had the Anglo-American connection. And through the Anglo-American connections, we were able to, to, to <coughs> open up on the international community of Africanists and, uh, and be visible uh, internationally. Uh, so uh, the institute, one minute. Uh, so, uh, uh, because of the, this pivot uh, towards Africa, the Institute uh, um, um, recruited more scholars, uh, uh, new scholars into, uh, uh, that, are, uh, that were strengthening the social sciences component uh, uh, of the, uh, the more economists, uh, more international relations specialists, uh, in particular more sociologists. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, topics of research were changing. Uh, uh, the common Moroccan African heritage was there, but it was on Sourdine. Uh, and uh, the, 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 the lectures of the common Moroccan African heritage were, you know, instead of having two conferences per year, we would have one conference every two years. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, there was more, uh, uh, more uh, topical research uh, issues of migration, issues of uh, uh, religious radicalism, issues, issues of security, uh, but also issues of uh, economic uh, cooperation, issue, issues of governance, uh, um, uh, issues of local government, uh, decentralization and uh, localization. So uh, what happened uh, since is, as I said, a prolification of centers of research today the institute is not alone anymore. Uh, and uh, the research is more geared towards answering more immediate demands. So we are, we are more dealing with uh, think tanks, policy research, than we are dealing with, re with really long, uh, Alain uh, academic uh, research. Uh, and even the institute is trying to, 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 to walk into that. Uh, into that uh. So among the think tanks that are very uh, active today uh, in Morocco, and some of whom are really very well endowed and much better endowed than, than the Institute of African Studies, the Royal Institute of Strategic Studies, uh, which deal with geopolitic, geopolitics, the Moroccan Center for S S Strategic Studies, which deals with defense and security issues, the OCP, the Officier Rifien de Phosphate Policy Center, uh, which is a think tank dealing with geopolitics and economy, uh, uh, International Institute of African Studies uh, in Casablanca, uh, uh, geared towards the, uh, whatever, uh, the demand of the business community of Casablanca, 
and uh, the Ministry of Waqfs and Islamic Affairs, as I said, which really has a very big uh, uh, section dedicated to religious policies, uh, politics <coughs> in Africa. So uh, in addition to that, as I said, many African studies program in various uh, universities, uh, Moroccan universities, including a chair in comparative uh, African studies at the International uh, University of Rabat, which is a French uh, university in Rabat, uh, newly created, and an African studies program at the Ecole de Gouvernance uh, uh, et d'Economie, Sciences Po, uh, uh, Sciences po in Rabat. So uh, IAS today has to really uh, compete with numerous uh, uh, actors in the field, some of whom are really more uh, or better endowed than, than, than uh, uh, or benefit of the su support uh, and uh, backing of the, the royal palace. And, and uh, so, uh, in conclusion, I would say that the Institute of African Studies at the University of Mohammed Senghor of Rabat might not have been a great made might not have made a great contribution to the area of. Uh, multidisciplinary uh, African studies. We've done a lot of history of African studies, I think, more than really multidisciplinary African studies. The, our, our works uh, are testimony to that. But it has contributed greatly, not only to the demystification of the Saharan separation wall, but to the consolidation of the place of the <coughs> Sahara uh, in the heart of African studies. It has prepared, we consider that it has prepared Morocco's uh, uh, return to Africa and its pivot to Africa. Uh, it has brought a new dynamism to the Africans' aspirations for continental unity and complementarity. And uh, finally, by, uh, uh, by focusing on the investigation of common Moroccan uh, African heritage since the 1980s, we could uh, consider that it has contributed to in the introduction of, of the cultural approach uh, uh, to the field of international relations. And I thank you. Good morning. Is, is it turned on? <clears throat> uh, I'm delighted to be uh, here and to participate on this panel today. And I wanted to um, thank Usman and everyone here for making this happen. I'm especially uh, happy to be presenting with my colleagues uh, from research institutions in Algeria, uh, Morocco, and virtually with uh, Ebrima in Senegal, whose presentations uh, have underscored really the role of African, re African research on West African and Maghreb intellectual interconnectivities. Today I've been invited to briefly outline the role of American Overseas Research Centers, which I will refer to as ORCs in the rest of this presentation. What ORCs have played in, in North Africa have played in the promotion of Saharan Sahel studies and I do this as the director of the Centre d'études Maghrebines en Algérie, a center I've directed as a political scientist for the last 12 years. At the outset, I really need to stress a simple point. And that point is that the role of American research centers in North Africa in promoting Saharan Sahel studies, Saharan studies, or trans-Saharan studies is greatly overshadowed by the excellent work of our friends and colleagues at research institutions in Algeria, Mauritania, Mali, Morocco, Niger, Nigeria, Senegal, and Tunisia. Uh, and especially sort of the work done in Morocco and then at, uh, at Libya, in Libya at the Merkaz Jihad, which have been two real big poles of sort of uh, looking at trans-Saharan studies. Um, so why sort of, 
why have, has sort of American research sort of or research centers had such a, a small impact on on trans-Saharan studies? Well, there are a number of reasons. For starters, uh, we're relatively new. Uh, the American Institute for Maghreb Studies only opened its first center in Tunisia in 1985, followed by Morocco in 1989 and Algeria in 2006. Whereas our counterpart, the West African Research Association, only opened its first center in Dakar in 1994. And while scholars, American scholars, have been since conducting research on different aspects of Saharan studies from the centers since their inception, their number has been few and far between. And in part, this reflects the difficulties of conducting trans-Saharan studies. For example, the time invested in learning multiple languages, the imperatives of finishing the PhD in time, especially if you're in the, the, some of the harder social sciences, the costs of multi-country research, et cetera. Uh, also, there's the relative youth of the field of trans-Saharan studies in the United States. Uh, and perhaps, too, the, the very utility of American research centers, which are located quite far from the Sahara. So in the Maghreb, they're located on the shores of the southern Mediterranean. And in, in Dakar, of course, that's on the Atlantic uh, coast. An institutionalized American effort to promote trans-Saharan studies in, uh, in North Africa only really begins in earnest. And by institutionalized here, I mean uh, with an annual conference, regularly scheduled lectures, research fellowships, and dissertation workshops for graduate students. This only really begins in 2009 with the Saharan Crossroads Initiative launched by the American Institute for Maghreb Studies and the West African Research Association, uh, which to date has organized three trans-region colloquia uh, a four-year small grants program, and a Young Scholars Workshop. And so while laudable, our imprint is less than a decade old and remains very modest and is at permanent risk of running out of funding. Um, it's virtually impossible to discuss the role of American overseas research centers in promoting trans-Saharan studies without first looking at how Saharan or trans-Saharan studies fit into, fall out of, or are completely ignored by the 75-year development of American area studies. Uh, <clears throat> American overseas research centers are the direct outgrowth of that American uh, of that area American area studies project, which itself is descended from racially charged French colonial policy and then racially charged American post-war hegemony. And while I would like to think that we've escaped our colonial and imperial roots, I think that the best we can say is that at least some of us now are reflective about what that means. And Specifically, I'm talking about sort of some of the work, more recent work on sort of area studies in America by Zach Lockman or, or Bob Vitalis, who build off of the earlier works of Sheikh Kanta Job, Mahmoud Mamdani, and Usman Khan. Um, and this, while ma many American scholars have long been aware that this area serves as much as a living space linking uh, North and West Africa rather than a barrier dividing the continent, the American Area Studies Project long used that space to cut, to, to, uh, cut two disturbingly discrete Africas, the sub-Saharan Africa, or sort of black African South, and the Maghreb, or the white Arab, or sometimes white Arab and Berber North, which was subsequently attached to the Middle East by American area studies. And for this reason, my paper focuses on the historical development of area studies in the United States, placing particular focus on the role of institutions, funding agencies, and individual scholars in first dividing and then somehow stitching back up the continent. Uh, in American research, this dismemberment really occurs almost by mistake with the development of African, with the African Studies Association and the Middle East uh, Studies Association in the 1950s and 60s, which sort of are overlapped on sort of these earlier colonial heritage and ways that we see things. And we might see the stitching back together of area studies project with the creation of subfields and the professionalization with the, with the founding of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies and the West African Research Association in the 1980s. 
Uh, both organizations uh, founded overseas research centers on the continent during the 20 years that followed, first in Tunisia, followed by Morocco, Senegal, and finally in Iran, Algeria. And as these centers provided home bases for many American uh, researchers in North and West Africa, we begin to see greater cross-fertilization across both disciplines and space, uh, calling for the development of institutionalized activities and programs to promote the Sahara as a lived African space, linking the North uh, to the West and vice versa. So the paper, the paper is divided into three sections, though today I'll only quickly summarize parts one and two, while mainly focusing on part three, which is actually the role of American research centers in North Africa in promoting um, uh, Trans-Saharan studies. Now, the, in the larger paper, sort of, I spend a lot of time mapping out the linkages between individuals, professional trajectories, philanthropic organizations and foundations and institutions in the formation of American area studies, and then later in, in Trans-Saharan studies. Uh, and sort of, also, I look at the linkages, uh, the overall linkages, but they're a little bit too dense to trace out in a 20-minute presentation. And sort of, in the paper, I do so with primary and secondary source documents and interviews with major actors in the in the project. So the implication of people, institutions, and money is a fascinating story and raises the question of whether area studies were created by scholars or rather by powers uh, above, outside, or on the periphery of the academe. Uh, but again, that can't be discussed here. So in the first part of my paper, I, I trace the slow development of African studies and Middle East studies in the United States, culminating in the foundation of the African Studies Association in 1957 and the Middle East Studies Association uh, a decade later in 1966. And this part of the paper grants special attention to the question of North Africa as a professional home for American North Africanists. Um, and though in 2018, most American North Africanists would clearly identify with Mesa as one of their professional homes, uh, that feeling was really underdetermined in, the, in the, the 1950s and 1960s, where people working on North Africa might have been happy equally with the African Studies Association as with the Middle East Studies Association. Um, so during uh, the African Studies uh, Association's first 10 years, it was, only, it was the only home to, to North Africanists. And with the founding of Mesa in 1966, North Africanists now had a second home, uh, leading to cross-area discussions uh, to situate where North Africa, uh, where American North Africans should hang their hat. Uh, and that ultimately, North, American North Africanists swung toward Mesa's likely linked to Mesa's early efforts to integrate these scholars into Mesa Executive Board and the Editorial Board of uh, Mesa Scholarly Journal, the International Journal of Middle East Studies. In part two, I trace the development of the subfields of Maghreb studies and West African studies close to two decades later, in the 1980s. Both subfields are directly traced to the expansion of the number of scholars and specialization of the research abetted by the development of professional area studies associations and the proliferation of area studies centers at American universities. The field culminated with the creation of two professional organizations, the American Institute for Maghreb Studies and the West African Research Association, organizations that would positively frame their respective fields through the benefits they offered their members. Selective material benefits included the annual conferences, biannual newsletters, quarterly scientific journals, mentoring programs, dissertation workshops, travel grants, and research fellowships for graduate students. In addition to the vital types of in-the-field assistance provided uh, by the overseas uh, research centers. Um, such advantages increased interest in North and West African studies, which in turn created a space for the development of further specialized sub-regional area studies. So now I'm gonna move into part three. Um, <clears throat> 
So with professional area studies associations established a subfield in the Middle East and, and sort of in Middle East and, uh, and African studies and with three research centers on the continent. Um, by the early 1990s, the missing link to reuniting North Africa with the rest of the continent remained the Sahara Sahel, sort of a zone including Algeria, Burkina Faso, Chad, Egypt, Libya, Mali, Mauritania, Morocco, Niger, Nigeria, Senegal, Sudan, and Tunisia. Just as the specialization of MESA and ASA engendered the formation of North African and West African studies, the multiplication and specialization of American scholars in those fields would give birth to a still very nascent field of, of Saharan or Trans-Saharan studies, um, which anthropologist Anne Greyer refers to as, or Geyer refers to as collective area studies, and which really focus on the economic, political, social, religious, and cultural linkages between uh, West and North Africa, especially among scholars working on the centrality of the Bled Shingeti, making up parts of contemporary Mauritania, and perhaps to a lesser degree, uh, some of the scholarly towns in northern Mali and Niger. Um, and then also it's sort of the, the north-south link that scholars, economic, and political elites of these regions have made over the centuries, right? Um, at the November 1992 African Studies Association meeting, historians Ann McDougall and the late John Hunwick organized a panel, uh, The Missing Link, the Sahara and African Studies, and the panel really discussed the compartmentalization, the unfortunate compartmentalization of the Middle East, North Africa, and Sub-Saharan Africa, and really the need to focus on the Trans-Sahara to tie them back together. And so doing so, in 1993, they founded the Saharan Studies Association, or SSA, uh, which is an affiliate of the African Studies Association. SSA sponsored panels at uh, annual uh, African Studies Association meetings and issued a biannual newsletter for members which has since uh, migrated online as a Google group network. McDougall and Hunwick, by creating SSA, really played a major yet not well-known um, role in uh, pushing trans-Saharan studies to what it is today. Um, similarly, in 2002, uh, anthropologist Jeremy Keenan established a Saharan studies program at the University of East Anglia and organized two major conferences on the Sahel before the program was dissolved a decade later. In the United States, in October 2004, current WARA president, anthropologist Wendy Wilson-Fall, and former Ames board member, historian Gillen Leiden, organized a one-day workshop on the Trans-Sahara. Called the Saharan Crossroads Initiative, the workshop focused on the Trans-Sahara, seeking to promote the study of Africa in its regional entirety, and therefore contributing to a paradigmatic shift, calling for a reconsideration of the area studies approach, and arguing that understanding development of contiguous regions depends on grasping their interconnectedness, as well as their specific char characteristics at any point in time. Though planned as a three-year program with the second follow-up conference and a curriculum development and teaching training seminar, the next organized activity would not be until 2009. <clears throat> uh, during the recesses of Mesa's 2006 uh, annual meeting, North African art historian, my friend and current WARA treasurer, Cynthia Becker, approached me to discuss the idea of a joint aims wara saharan Crossroads initiative to continue earlier initiatives on the Trans-Sahel. And having earned an undergraduate degree in African Studies at the University of Kansas under Leonardo Villalon, Fiona McLaughlin, and Usman Khan, uh, and having worked closely with my PhD advisors uh, at the University of Texas at Austin, North Africanist Clement Henry and West African uh, scholar Catherine Boone, a former war president, I strongly supported the initiative and put that idea uh, to Ames vote at the 2007 board meeting. Ultimately, the American Institute for Maghreb Studies unanimously voted in favor, and over the next two years, Ames and War worked tirelessly to drop a more formalized and enduring Saharan Crossroads initiative to support trans-Saharan studies. Um, 
After two years of planning in 2009 with, with uh, financial support from outside donors, Ames and War launched a new Saharan Crossroads initiative, which included conferences, lecture series, and a small grants programs for scholars working on the Trans-Sahara. The first scholarly event, um, Saharan Crossroads viewed, uh, Views from the North, uh, was organized in Italian and Tangier. Organized by Cynthia Becker and WARA US Director, linguist Jennifer Yanko, the three-day conference brought together scholars working on the Sahara, Sahel, and Trans-Sahara. Gilen Leiden, um, a Nigerian political scientist, Abdurrahman Idrissa, who completed his dissertation under Leonardo Villalon at the University of Florida, and sociologist and then uh, WARA uh, Vice President and later President Scott Youngstead organized the second conference, Saharan Crossroads, Views from the South, organized in Niamey in 2011. Many of the papers of that conference were subsequently published in an edited volume in 2014. The final conference planned in this series, Saharan Crossroads, Views from the Desert's Edge, was organized in Oran. Now, sort of Oran, of course, is not on the desert's edge, but uh, we originally planned to organize it in Ghardaya in Algeria, but because of the series of sort of loud plan making and social upheaval, we had to move it to the north. Um, the final conference, uh, uh, Sort of was composed of a scientific com uh, committee, including UCLA anthropologist and former Ames president, uh, uh, Vice President uh, Umar Boom, Gilan Leiden, and Algerian geographers Sidi Mohamed Mohamdi and Sidi Mohamed Trash. The event differed from past conferences in that it, it partnered with local research institutions, including the University of Ghardaya and Algeria's premier research uh, center, the Centre National de Recherche en Anthropologie Sociale et Culturelle. Crask published and edited a volume of select papers two years later. In addition to integrating American and North, uh, and North and West African research institutions, the three conferences brought together scholars from the United States, Algeria, Cameroon, Ghana, Mali, Mauritania, Morocco, Niger, Nigeria, Senegal, and Tunisia for solid discussion on the Sahara and Trans-Saharan studies. Ames and WARA II secured uh, funding for Trans-Saharan studies from the Carnegie Corporation of New York. In addition to funding the 2014 conference, the grant covered costs of a four-year small grants program, uh, the Saharan Crossroads Fellowship to finance American field research on the Trans-Sahara, as well as North Africans uh, to, to conduct research in the Sahel and West Africans to conduct research in uh, North Africa. During the four-year funding stream, the, the fellowship financed the research of 16 American, Maghrebian, West African scholars conducting research on the Trans-Sahara. Um, the 2016 cycle was conducted by a two-day workshop at Talim in Tangier, presided by uh, West Africa specialist Leonardo Violon and historian of the Algerian Sahara, Benjamin Brower. In addition to providing field assistance to scholars working on Saharan issues, in parallel to uh, the Ames WARA Saharan Crossroads Initiative, SEMA, this is the institute that I direct, uh, began its own efforts to promote trans-Saharan studies in Algeria. And in 2010, we purchased a 300-volume private collection on the Sahara that would be the core of a growing collection of scientific works on the Trans-Sahara. In 2011, uh, we too uh, initiated a Saharan Lectures series in collaboration with the CRASC, presenting the work of core Trans-Saharan scholars, including uh, Guylaine Leiden, Judith Shela, Slim, uh, Slim Khiat, Augustin Jomier, Nadia Marouf, Tamara Turner, Abdurham Moussaoui, Barbara Cooper, Lamine Swag, Wendy Wilson-Fall, Dida Badi, Usman Khan, and Yassin Dadi, uh, among some of them. To date, Seema and Krask have organized 36 lectures and multiple methodology workshops as part of the series, many of which have been financed by local grants. So sort of in concluding, the process of promoting trans, uh, the American process 
of promoting trans-Saharan studies has not been without starts and fits of the last 50 years, and in many ways resol uh, revolves around the question of the place of North Africa, one of several regions on the continent or a region more closely, and on the or a region more closely uh, linked with the Middle East. And as this sort of presentation or the paper shows, that despite the rupture within African studies sparked the birth of, uh, of the African Studies Association and Middle East Studies Association in the late 1950s and early 1960s, North and West Africanists, and, and certainly North and West Africans, have always uh, been drawn together, uh, both in the research and commitment to promoting understudied regions of the continent. But the creation very few American specialists working on the Sahara, the very few, were view, really viewed as exotic outliers and likely thought of themselves, too, as without a home. Uh, the key driver in all of this is, has been the force and conviction of a group of American, Maghrebi, and West African scholars to support, if not personally engage, in cross-discipline cross, uh, and cross- and trans-regional analysis. Um, for the past 30 years, a growing number of, uh, of sort of uh, international scholars have argued uh, that the significance of the cultural and economic and political continuity spanning the Saharan Desert merit a new perspective, sort of trans-Saharan studies. But we might ask whether Saharan studies or the study of lands, people, and cultures of the Sahara is the same thing as trans-Saharan studies. Uh, the former uh, remains divided between North Africa and West Africa, whereas the latter necessarily uh, moves between the two and sort of links the two. Um, with the movement of ideas, trade, and people across the Sahara, uh, uh, Saharan studies, within Sahara, that's always in the background, um, but generally Saharan studies focuses on, on sort of static places such as oases, Saharan cities, Saharan ethnic groups, or sometimes the linkages between people and places of the Sahara and national capitals, thus in effect, intrastate trans-Saharan studies. Uh, whereas trans-Saharan studies, uh, dominated by anthropologists, linguists, geographers, and historians, especially historians working on economic and legal institutions, the flow of ideas and empire, um, sort of are different. Uh, and you really see a sort of a difference between sort of Saharan and, and what is trans-Saharan studies uh, in the breakdown of the, 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 the sort of the types of grants that we've offered and the types of uh, presentations that have been, uh, that have been held at, uh, at our conferences at, the, at, at our different research centers. Um, sort of in concluding, sort of just I just want to conclude saying that sort of uh, despite the, the fact that for centuries sort of North and West African scholars uh, have been keenly aware of the inter interconnectivities uh, uh, between them, uh, sort of in the United States uh, it still remains a sort of relatively youthful field. Uh, it, there's still a limited number of scholars working on this and the environment um, to promote scholarship on the Trans-Sahara is still quite, uh, still quite difficult. Uh, having said that, sort of increasingly professional associations, institutional support, and financial, ba financial backing and the drive of individual scholars should in, in sort of likely sort of continue the, the, the promotion of a, sort of a, a nascent Trans-Saharan studies in the United States. Thanks. I, I want to spend a little bit of time. Um, my paper is in three parts: uh, a little bit of a conceptual uh, background and uh, and history, and and something about Kodasira itself and a set of new trends and challenges. Uh, I and I will begin with a quote from Ali Masroui. Masroui uh, is uh, well known for what he said about Africans having a triple heritage. Right? That's uh, very widely cited. Uh, but Masri also talks about Afrabia, 
It's a concept he used in an article he published in a journal called Ifahamu, a journal of African studies in 1992. And the title is Africa and the Arabs in the New World Order. Uh, and I think both in this article and in what I'm going to say about Kudesria, we'll see that the, it's not only a question of uh, the relations uh, covering a geographical area across the Sahara, linking the north and the south, but it's also about the kinds of issues that are raised in the, in the discussion and in the research and in the intellectual connections. Um, uh, uh, in, uh, you know, in, this, in this article I mentioned, talks about uh, Africa being actually you know, not so divided as it may, it may appear in Africa and the Arab world, are both um, from three points of view actually connected very, very closely. The first point of view is the geological point of view, and he argues that Africa and Arabia were one landmass before the great rupture took place and separated them in part. Um, and so the, the second uh, point he, he is making is that uh, continental Pan-Africanists tend to see the Sahara as a sea of communications rather than a chasm of separation. Uh, and therefore, uh, the Sahara doesn't constitute a natural barrier. And there is no other natural barrier between North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, or what is referred to as Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, the third uh, reason for saying that there is much closer relationship between the two is, is historical, actually. That historically, the peoples of the regions have been moving in both directions, um, built strong networks of a religious nature, trade nature, intellectual networks all across. Uh, and uh, Masri, therefore, argues that these long and intensive relationships uh, and linkages have created what he calls Afrabia and communities of Afrabians. Now, he defines Afrabians in the foreign terms. Uh, they have what he calls the cultural Afrabians, who are those whose culture combines African traditions with the Arab and Muslim heritage. African Muslims and native speakers of Swahili and Hausa languages are cultural Afrabians in this sense. There are also the genealogical Afrabians, uh, who are those who are descended by blood from both Africa and the Arab world, like the Masuri family, his own family in particular. Uh, um, then there are the, the, the third category of those he calls the ideological Afrabians, uh, who are those who believe in the unity of Africa and the Arab world without having either shared, a shared ancestry or a shared religion. And he quotes uh, Kwame Kurma as a good example of that, uh, whose children obviously are genealogical Afrobians because they have an Egyptian mother. And Abdullah Bushra, who uh, was the first full-time executive secretary of Kodesria after the uh, council was founded in 1973 um, uh, by, by, by the late Samir Amir, who passed away uh, just last month, um, Bujara uh, sums Masuri's definition by saying that Afrabia, in fact, is therefore a product of geography, while Afrabians are the product of intensive relationships which are taking place between the Arabs and Africans in what he calls corridors of interaction. Now, Masuri further argues that there are a lot of Africans, the majority of Arabs, sorry, are in, in, on the African continent, right? Uh, and, uh, and there are also, in addition to the, those who call Arabs who are on the African continent, there are the Somalis and the Kushites and a number of other populations that have strong Arab and cultural influences uh, who are also on the African continent. Now, the, the, what happened, therefore, uh, over the years between giving that unity of multidimensional unity, uh, Abdullah Bushra, in a, in, a, in a lecture he gave in Libya in 2002, uh, argued that there are actually corridors that existed, uh, three corridors that have been used 
you know, as a, you know, lines of communication, channels of communication between, uh, you know, the one part of Africa and the other part in which uh, Africans have been have been communicating. Uh, that's what he calls the Eastern uh, Africa Corridor, including the Horn of Africa, and then there's the Nile Corridor, which includes Ethiopia and Uganda, and there is the third one, which he calls North Africa Sahel West African Corridor, which is much closer to the subject of this particular conference, looking at West Africa and the Maghreb. And the relations between uh, the Arabs and Africans which took place in these corridors can be looked at from the perspective of historical processes or contemporary relationships and, and processes. Now, historically, uh, there have been political and economic relationships uh, you know, that, that linked the two. Uh, there are contemporary interstate relationships. There are contemporary institutional relations uh, through institutions such as the African Development Bank, the, 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 the Arab Bank for African Development, private banks, enterprises, and so on, universities, think tanks, the AU, the African Arab League, labor unions, telecoms unions, educational organizations, and so on. And then there are people-to-people -people relationships, which historically and contemporarily have taken place through migration, settlement, intermarriages, informal trade, religious networks, and so on. Um, uh, I think what uh, is important to note here is that um, the colonial experience sort of disrupted these relationships in a very big way and introduced new dimensions. And we should remind ourselves that throughout the African continent, wherever also there has been a tension uh, and, and the issues of religion, Islam in particular, and Muslims, uh, you know, came into coming to the scene. It sort of uh, uh, it has been associated with certain tensions and, in some instances, even open conflict. And that sort of impacts on the relationships between uh, North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, now, I think what I see even more important is talking about Arabia is what actually it means in terms of the identities of people. And uh, because the the examples that Mazuri cites and Abdullah and we have seen at Kodesra is that. There is uh, a blending of cultures and identities, particularly through Islam, the Arabic culture, and in many African countries, one finds people, including countries like Nigeria, Ghana, Tanzania, and elsewhere, where uh, you know a number of people have, you know, uh, Arabic influences in their, in their cultures or in the languages they speak, uh, or the religions they practice, uh, and that was why at Kodesa we began talking about an Arabophone. Uh, initiative in sort of Afro-Arab relationships. I remember having these uh, discussions very often with Fatima, and uh, there was a sort of, a, you know, a reluctance to talk about Afro-Arab relations because that was a little bit superficial in the sense that it didn't capture the complexity of the relationships that exist between, uh, you know, these populations we are referring to. Uh, and there has been, in the sense also, uh, through the work of Kodesa and all these networks of an intellectual nature that I've been referring to, a kind of uh, space of common sense of meaning that has been constructed. Now, the, the, what happened with colonialism and the building of independent states, because it, the process in this topic of colonialism is with the, with the construction of independent states and the attempt to build nations and strengthen national identities, there has been a sort of uh, um, redirection of loyalties uh, and, uh, and a, a kind of a factor introduced between, uh, in a sense, the the different countries and in the, in the, between, the, between the, those who are the north of the Sahara and those who are the south of the Sahara. Uh, and with the creation of sub-regional bodies like ECOWAS or Union of Maghreb, you also have a reason why a certain number of countries will tend to you know, coalesce among themselves and look at the others as you know, adverse uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 exchange partners. 
Now, the, the, what I want to move on to now is what, what, what has been called the new Pan-Africanist uh, intellectual connections and focus more specifically on what Kodesiria has tried to do. Kodesiria is this, uh, a Pan-African Social Science Council that was established in 1973 and based in Dakar. And from the beginning, uh, it chose to cover the continent as a whole. Uh, and in the way it is organized and the way it is governed, you have all the parts of the continent covered. In a sense, at the beginning, it sort of followed the AU model, or the OAU, which was what was in place then, and had uh, representatives of uh, scholars from East Africa, Central Africa, North Africa, uh, West and South, and in the executive committee of, of the council. Uh, but the, the more important thing is that there was an attempt to create, to could I say, and turn it into a platform uh, that would uh, be a platform for intellectuals of Africa to engage in, and here I'm quoting Samir Amin, independent and audacious reflections on the problems of the contemporary world. So the point was not about Africa only, but it was about Africans making sense of the realities uh, around them within the continent, but also making sense of, 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 the world, uh, of the world around, and doing that in an independent way. The context was a context of, uh, uh, you know, dependence, great dependence following the colonial experience and fragmentation, uh, again, following in part the colonial experience. And obviously the starting point was if you want to have a, an independent and an audacious take on issues or look at the issues, you have to deal with what Moody may call the colonial library uh, that has been, I'm sure, discussed extensively in this conference. Uh, and then, you know, deal with the epistemological issues that are associated with knowledge production. Now, Samir, I mean, uh, uh, for those who don't know, and I, I don't think anybody you know, would ignore that fact, was an Egyptian uh, who, in fact, lived the last five decades of his life mainly in Senegal, where he, had, he established, Kodesria established another network called ENDA, working on environmental and development issues, uh, and the Third World Forum. And, uh, and this Egyptian, therefore, convened this meeting at which Kodesria was formed in 1973, uh, and in the team, we had a number of people from all over the African continent, and some came from the diaspora. And after he left, he was succeeded by, uh, gave away after three years the leadership of the secretariat to Abdullah Bouchard, who is a Kenyan Arab also. Uh, and I think what this tells us is that here was a, an attempt to make sure that there was a space uh, open and there was a forum at which African intellectuals of all persuasions, particularly those who are interested in the independence of the continent, could come together and reflect across all the boundaries of a linguistic nature, disciplinary nature that existed. Uh, and that, therefore, is what Kodasia tried to do. And reaching out to uh, across the, the, the Sahara Desert to, to, to North Africa was a normal, a normal thing to do, uh, in, as part of an attempt to have a comprehensive understanding of, of the issues. Um, I think the, the, what, what the, the understanding that most African intellectuals therefore had of the continent was that it was a single space, in a sense, uh, even if it was uh, sort of uh, fragmented, but it was one space, and it's a physical space, uh, it's a social space in the sense that Henri Lefebvre uses the term, a space of production, a space of reproduction, and a space of representations. Uh, and in, in attempting to be a continental council, that is the space that Kodesria uh, uh, you know, tried to occupy. And the founders obviously had a deep understanding of the intellectual history of the continent. And that history is a history also of very close relations and exchanges across the Sahara Desert, 
uh, we have major centers on both sides, you know, in, 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 in some in Morocco, some in Tunisia, we have the Tumbuktu uh, is one of the major centers uh, on the um, south part of the center, uh, Sahara. In Senegal, there are a number of other or intellectual uh, centers as well. Now, I think to illustrate the attempt to have this coverage across the, 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 the Sahara Desert and involving everybody is the way in which programs were structured and uh, activities were organized. Uh, and the most important event, of course, that is held every three years is the General Assembly of Kodestria that brings a, together a cross-section of, uh, of the community. And uh, the 13th General Assembly was held in, in Rabat, uh, hosted by the Institute of African Studies that uh, Fatima uh, discussed extensively in our presentation. Uh, and uh, um, it uh, was the conference at which Fatima was elected as the first North African to be the president of Kodestria. Uh, and I think the, the, uh, the you know, with the, the election of, first of all, with the rotation, it was a way of bringing home uh, this community and to make it feel at home in every part of the continent. The General Assembly had been held in East Africa, in Southern Africa, in West Africa many times before then. And then this time around, it was in, uh, in, in North Africa. I want to, to, to speak a little bit more specifically about the kinds of interventions that Corecia has been making that sort of show this uh, determination and certainly a certain attempt to, to make sure that uh, we cross all the boundaries and we, we, we function as a community that is not confined to the sub-Saharan sub part of the continent. And the main interventions are, of course, research, uh, nurturing a new generation of researchers through training, training, a series of training programs, uh, publishing, initiating public debates, and, and, and policy debates. Um, and uh, the, the aim, obviously, is to, one of the main aims is to bridge knowledge divides across these disciplines, you know, across uh, different intellectual traditions. And one of the most important divides has been that, uh, the one that, uh, that Usman Khan discusses in, in you know, some, several of his books now. The, the first one was, uh, is that one titled uh, Non-European Intellectuals. And that is the divide between all those of us who have been to these institutions of higher learning uh, that are modeled on the universities of the West and, uh, and all the other intellectuals who you know, have been either to uh, other parts of the world or who didn't go to the Western universities anyway. Uh, and the, the, the divide has been there for a long time and the attempt to engage with the intellectual community was at one point felt to be an absolute necessity if we are serious about, um, you know, again being Pan-African and not confining uh, our community to the to the confines of what the European Europhone intellectual uh, are already discussing. Uh, and I think that that publication was followed uh, by a major event, a conference, uh, and uh, followed by a, a book on the meanings of Timbuktu, which uh, sort of took the debate further in terms of engaging the content of the Timbuktu manuscripts written in different languages, but using the Arabic script for many of them. Uh, and that's a um, And then there were other, other, other initiatives that, that, that followed. Uh, the, the much more usual ways of operating in terms of generating research is through what are called uh, these working groups. Uh, there are country level groups called national working groups and uh, you know, networks that cover several countries called multinational working groups or comparative research networks. And the way it is organized, uh, the way these groups are organized, contemplative groups are initiated by people. So if you had some initiated by Moroccan scholars, owned by Tunisian scholars, by Algerian scholars, 
uh, you know, I could name quite a number of them as I, as I move. Um, and then uh, there are also the multinational working groups, which um, are more deliberately, you know, aimed at connecting the conversations and making sure that people work on issues that are of interest and of importance to the continent across the, the linguistic and the geographical uh, the, the, you know, divides. Uh, I just want to cite three. One was on labor movements uh, in, in, and processes of transformation on the continent. And it had as its coordinators an Algerian, uh, uh, Ali Elkins, who, who is now in Nantes, uh, probably has retired, uh, and a Nigerian as another coordinator, as Jimmy Adesina, uh, who is a specialist of labor, labor issues and social movements. Uh, the second one is uh, one on urban processes, and we had a Moroccan Abuhani, Adelgani Abuhani, uh, as one of the coordinators, and Abdulmalik Simon as the other coordinator. And the third one, is, uh, the third example is a, is a network on a multinational working group on social movements with uh, a Tunisian, uh, Mahmoud Ben Ramdan, uh, uh, who I understand is a minister at one point, was a minister in the government of Tunisia much later, uh, and uh, Mahmoud Mamdani. Uh, uh, was the other coordinator together with Wamba Jawamba. Now, these are people from different parts of the continent, but they are also working in different languages. Yeah, so you have the, the possibility of making sure that people engage with the literatures and intellectual traditions in different languages, uh, here particularly English and French, in a much more important way. And uh, the, 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 the second mode of operation are the national working groups, which are, you know, have been said a number of them, tens and tens of them set up across the continent, probably hundreds now. Um, here, one of the criteria was the extent to which a national working group would inform the rest of the continent on the issues uh, that are of importance in their context. But it, in a sense, it was a way of getting scholars together. In some cases, in fact, they had no experience of working together as on their own initiative in the countries that were cited, that were, that were established. Uh, and then coming together to say, look, we want to contribute to a debate. You know, it's a multidisciplinary initiative you know, researching an issue and then contributing that uh, to the debate on the continent. And here are a number of examples, and Zakaria Salem, who is with you there, uh, led one such group in Mauritania, uh, on this Mauritanian state, uh, and there are a number of others uh, in Algeria and elsewhere too. Um, a third mode of intervention has been just the scheduling of activities in different parts of the, uh, of the continent, including in North Africa. Uh, some of them are regular activities being held in the same places. Uh, Cairo is one place where, uh, you know, symposia, gender symposia are held, or you know, used to be held every year. Uh, there is uh, a good relationship with the African and Arab Research Center. Uh, translations into Arabic have been done mostly there. The, the, the Arabic edition of Cortez Bulletin is published from there, uh, and so on. Uh, and then it's, it's good that on this panel we have somebody from Krask, um, um, uh, Professor Kedir. Um, and, and Krask is one of the, 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 the main you know, partners of Kodasria in Algeria. Uh, They've been hosting the methodology workshop for North Africa regularly, where young scholars from across the region come together uh, to discuss methodological issues. Uh, and they're also the co-editors and co-managers of the Africa Review of Books which is a Pan-African journal, bilingual, English, French, uh, and together with uh, a center in Ethiopia called the Forum for Social Studies. Uh, again, this is one way of linking institutions and getting them to work together and manage uh, a project together. Um, the, I think the most ambitious uh, attempt that we, we launched uh, together with Fatima was, was that of uh, an Arabophone Institute, as we call it, which was intended to be an advanced institute uh, that would uh, bring together uh, you know, scholars uh, from the different parts of the continent 
on themes of importance to, to both uh, parts of the continent. Uh, and it, unfortunately, we had one session, and so for some whole host of reasons, the, 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 there hasn't been a second session. Uh, and publishing is the third or fourth mode of intervention. I think what, what makes a difference usually in the connections between the two is also when staffing issues are, are handled properly. Um, because it's a Pan-African institution, there have been attempts to, by Codencia to get people from North Africa in the Secretariat in Dakar, and that changes the dynamics quite a lot when you have people who are able to engage with the communities who know the networks in the other parts of the continent and can help in mobilizing. Uh, we've had Hakim Ben Hamouda, uh, who's been in the Secretariat before him, um, uh, Najib Muselmi, also a Tunisian, uh, and now we have uh, Sidi Hida Bushara from Morocco, who is in, his, in the Secretariat. Um, I want to uh, talk about, this is the last part of my presentation, I'm told the, the time is running up, of what are the trends and what are some of the challenges. Uh, I think the, what I heard in, the, in Fatima's presentation actually resonates quite well with, with, uh, with has, what has been happening to Kotesia. There are a lot more partners now involved in this exchanges with North Africa, uh, with institutions reaching out to those on the other side of the continent on their own. Uh, with, uh, I think the official defender for SWAT has been, has been cited. As an example, um, the, uh, the Center for Strategy Studies has been, has been cited as an example. These are centers that have relationships with Codesia, uh, and they followed, of course, what the Institute of African Studies has been doing with Codesia before them. Uh, so you have, uh, you know, that, that is, a, I think, an important trend. And again, you see more them posing as think tanks, and you're picking up issues that are contemporary related to the environment, or discussing environmental issues, discussing migrations. Uh, the migration crisis, discussing security challenges in Sahel, uh, you know, uh, particularly with uh, the, you know, Acme, Boko Haram, and the crisis in Mali. Now, Mohamed Saleh, uh, at the planning meeting that we had in Cairo in 2010, and Fatima was there too, the meeting to plan the Arabophone initiative and, you know, make it a major research and publishing and training program uh, that will involve the work on these issues that are you know, related to Arabophony on all parts of the continent. Mohamed Sali made this argument that one way of promoting uh, these Pan-African connections across the Sahara uh, is actually to get scholars and institutions on both sides to be picking up issues of a contemporary nature, addressing the current challenges uh, uh, that are on the, on the agenda of both uh, the scholars and the policymakers of both sides. Uh, and I think that's been uh, something that we've been trying to do a little bit, but more of it ought to be done now. And, and the good reason why it has to be done is that already you've got a lot of engagement at the level of the business community, you know, um, companies are establishing here and there, um, you know, you've got the migration issue which I referred to. We also had the, 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 the Arab Spring, uh, what has been called the Arab Spring, happening at exactly the same time when a lot of other movements were also, you know, uh, rising up in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, Yanamar in Senegal, Bali Situan later in Burkina Faso, which are some of the most vibrant youth movements uh, on the continent today, all addressing the same kinds of issues related to job insecurity, uh, to, uh, you know, problems of poor social services, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, other, other issues of importance to both of them. Uh, and I think these are issues that research has to pick up, to, you know, in a more important way. And obviously, I think the research can, that can inform very well on these issues is the one that is on in a collaborative uh, manner, uh, linking people across the continent. Now, I want to, to probably end my presentation here and say that, look, I think uh, uh, with all the efforts that have been made, fact of the matter is, in Codestrian circles, North Africa is still somewhat underrepresented in terms of the number of activities that are carried out. 
Uh, and that is a, a challenge that uh, people have been thinking about finding ways of overcoming uh, and have not seen figure out the best way of doing it. Uh, and I'm seeing it where I'm now working with Trust Africa, which is uh, based in Dakar also, and exactly the same issues are coming up. It's also a Pan-African institution, and we realize that only 2% of the activities are held in North Africa. So here too, we are saying, well, maybe you could borrow a leave from Kodese and hire people from North Africa and schedule more activities in North Africa. The second thing I want to say in conclusion is that there is an interest in these issues uh, for the nature of the debates that one can have you know, when we come together to discuss. And I'll start just one example. Uh, talking about these uh, movements for democracy arising in North Africa and on the rest of the continent, uh, in 2013, uh, Kodasria co-organized with the University of Tunis and the Tunisian Sociology Association um, uh, also a, a conference on these movements for democracy in North Africa and in a comparative perspective with the rest of the continent. We had as partners these institutions that actually contributed even to the financing of these activities. And they could have gone ahead and organized this conference on their own, but there was an interest in a Pan-African understanding of the issues and a shared understanding of these issues across the continent. And I think that's uh, uh, something that we should, we should take into account as we move on. Uh, I think the third point I want to make in conclusion is that there are also a lot of tripartite relationships that are built. And I think the last presentation by Professor Parks is an, a good illustration of that kind of uh, uh, initiative. I think um, in the study of migrations or pilgrimages or you know economic exchanges or security challenges, you know it would be very good to have more of these tripartite relationships linking, for example, Harvard Divinity School or the Center for African Studies of Harvard with Codesria uh, and some institutions in North Africa, coming up with uh, you know uh, joint research projects and you know policy dialogue conferences and so on. Um, the only thing one can have to do as a cautionary note is that uh, often these initiatives are taken by the institutions of the North that come with the, not only the ideas as what was to be done, they also have the resources uh, and therefore the, 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 the capacity and the, the potential for picking up you know, Pan-African issues in those, those debates are usually quite limited. So I think it's, it's something to pay attention to as we, as we uh, do that. I think one of the, the answers to that is to have made more of these initiatives taken also by scholars of uh, the South coming from uh, Sub-Saharan Africa or from, you know, uh, from, from North Africa and then inviting the others to join in the collaborative uh, yeah, you know, undertaking together. I think I'll stop here and say uh, once again thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to participate. I'm sure I've missed a lot and have probably been repeating things that you already have been, been discussing uh, but it was an opportunity to share a few ideas and, and an experience which I think has been very valuable and from which we can learn a lot more than what I've just mentioned. Thank you very much. I usually don't feel comfortable in a conference that doesn't give enough room to the participants to raise questions. So I'm going to use my uh, prerogative as chair to at least allow us to do that in the next 10, 15 minutes. If that is okay, by Usman. Okay. So uh, I'm sure there are comments or questions. Uh, let us be very brief. Let's start with um, Abraham so that we don't, we can allow him go also, but let's kind of ask him some questions. I'm going to raise the first question, my brother. Um, I quite agree with everything you have said, but the question I have is that why is it that African Union is not supporting Codestria? 
I understand that uh, you know in several of the, 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 com the comments we've had today, African studies in Morocco, uh, they lack resources, they lack money. So a pan-African in initiative like that, and I quite agree with you that it's a very central uh, uh, institute for all of us. Why is African Union not supporting it, at least financially? Why is it not a, 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 a part of the agenda, particularly maybe on their cultural development or educational development uh, in Addis Ababa? That would be my question. Any other question for him so that we can just give him the chance to respond to all our, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, uh, Zakaria Ahmed Salim. Hello, good to see you. Good to see you, Ibrahim. This is Zakaria Ahmed Salim. Good to hear you. <laughs> so thank you for that overview. Uh, I think this, is a, this has been a conference on Islam in Africa, so it's a topical conference, but it was very helpful to have this institutional conversation be between uh, institutions that really, really, really did a great job. And now I think the West, in general, the Western institution where we are based now, and we are grateful for that, but they really are catching up with what Kodesria and the Institute, Rabat Institute of African Studies have been doing for many years. Of course, I'm especially biased because I've been helped by Kodasriya to run a national group, my first edited volume. I really felt home coming back from France to go back to Africa and find a home, an intellectual home. And maybe without that, I would have not been continuing to do my scholarship. So I think we, should, we need to remind people of the role of Kodasriya uh, about that. But beyond that, I think also it's helpful to examine, uh, as you guys did, uh, the, the work that has been done in terms of intellectual history, contemporary intellectual history of Africa. So one of the things that have always puzzled me about Kodesriya is uh, it has not been pushing for study of religion. So this is a discrepancy that I have been struggling with. I like everything about Kodesriya and I, I, am, I am a very vocal member of this organization and I will always support it. But how is it, how, how, I know there is some intellectual ideological maybe explanation, but why did Kodesriya neglect it for so long the religious effervescence in Africa in its programs? All right, last question for him. Uh, if you can permit me to answer the last question. I think Codestra did. I once chaired a, a Codestra summer program uh, in Senegal. Yeah, it was on religion and politics, and there were 13 young scholars from different parts of the continent who came there. Yeah. Yeah, okay, but I'll give it to you. It's not my question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, can you want to respond to that? Yes, thank you. Thank you, Professor. Thank you uh, for the questions, uh, and Zakaria. Uh, I, I think I want to, to begin with the, well, maybe the last question and then I go to the first one. I, part of the answer has been given. There has been an attempt to, to not only do research, but to prepare scholars to do more research on, uh, on religious uh, issues. And as, uh, you know, as you said, I think they are extremely important issues that we cannot ignore. 
uh, and the institute that Professor Rupona uh, uh, directed for, for three weeks uh, some time ago was, was intended to lead to the setting up of networks, religious networks. Um, and, and, um, and, and, you know, some of it, it happened, people pick up, continue to work on their own on the issues, but it's true that there was no major program following that, uh, bringing together the same group, uh, which would have been ideal. Um, but there have been, you know, other, other, other attempts also, and even before then, I think the, the, the talking about intellectual history, uh, the work that was done with, with, uh, with Usman, you know, when he came up with this book on non for intellectuals, it was actually, uh, the, the, I think the first major take, you know, on those issues and say, look, no, we need to, we cannot, you know, just pre continue to function as if the only literature that is available is literature in English and French that we know, and then leave aside all the debates and all this volume of work that, that exists and begin engaging with it. And it was having to follow also again by more research programs. Uh, and it was good that it, 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 you know, it was, the issue was taken up, you know, certainly by others in their own work. Uh, but um, it, probably a lot more also could have been done, and there have been some, uh, uh, you know, other other publications that came out um, that are related to that, as I said, the manuscripts of Timbuktu, uh, and so on. Uh, but but you are right. I think there should be much more much more effort. And I mean, religion also it's also been discussed. They've been talking about gender. There's been a lot of work looking at uh, with people like Fatou leading it. What are the implications of particular discourses in religion on gender? And gender relations and issues like that also have been picked up. On the first question related to the African Union, Professor, I think you put your finger on a very fundamental issue here. Um, for a long time, I think it was an underestimation of the value of research, right, at a, at a very general level. Uh, obviously, not also forgetting that the African Union, for all its activities, yeah, you know, is also funded primarily by, by external sources. But, but they have enough resources to devote to research. And uh, there was, for the time, a, some kind of negligence of the value of research, and they were not putting, putting money into that. Uh, but if you just look at the trends and what's going on today, uh, we've been talking about North Africa and Morocco coming back to the African Union. I mean, it should have been a subject of, of important you know, research initiatives, and uh, some people are picking it up on their own. But it's something that could have been of interest to the African Union to say, hey, Kodasria, why can't you, you know, we are interested in getting to understand this thing better. Uh, you know, let's let's we can support you to do it. Uh, Morocco joining the joining ECOWAS is a subject of debate among intellectuals now, and I think it's something that probably will become more important as you go along in the discussions among intellectuals on both sides of the Sahara. Uh, but but that's also something that ECOWAS and the African Union could have also maybe initiated and supported. Beyond that, there are a lot of other you know, activities that are not only confined to that. We've, we've approached the African Union when I was. Uh, the executive of Kodasi and proposed that look, they're, they're signing partnerships with China, with Turkey, with the European Union, with Brazil, with all these continents and countries, uh, and yet one wonders what is the knowledge that is backing the, 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 and the research that is backing those negotiations when they go into negotiating them. Because, you know, we don't have the infrastructure, we don't do much research on other regions of the world. Uh, and so there was an attempt to say, look, you know, we, you need to support research more. The good thing, though, and I'll stop there, the good thing is that there is, within the AU, I think, increasing awareness of the importance of research and of the importance of linking up with research institutions, uh, universities, and Kodesa uh, uh, in particular. Uh, and there, before I left, we had a, a memorandum of understanding with the Political Affairs Department of the African Union, who saw the journals we are publishing with uh, the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa on transformations, and they thought that like, they also could benefit from something like that. And more important was that they felt that the work that Kodesia does 
could complement the work that they do. Uh, it's a small department of the African Union involved in firefighting all across the continent, you know, monitoring elections, uh, monitoring human rights abuses all over the continent, and, and they are not successful in doing that. So they're saying a strategic partnership with institutions like Corestria would help in not only generating knowledge, but also maybe finding answers to some of the big problems of the AU, and that is implementation, for example, of all the decisions that they're taking, uh, the obstacles to that, and how to, you know, make their work much more efficient. Well, I, I think this is what I would want to give as answers to these two questions. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Abraham. May I invite the other members to come back to the table so that you can listen to these questions and answer them. Thank you. Thank you, my brother. Hey, morning. Um, I'm a student at HKS. A small question. I was talking to one of the panelists over there. And, um, my background is more like a, I was working for an NGO and based in, in Senegal, in Dakar. So I was traveling all over the region. And um, you know, we don't have much funding. But let's say if you have like, I don't know, like a million, one million budget dollar. My question is, what, what can we do for, because I work a lot with madrasas. And I'm looking for practical solution. I'm not a researcher in any way, and I love, I love to read most of the research I read. But my job is to implement, to develop projects, and to implement them in the Sahel. So I'm always, I'm always, how can I, how can I say that? Most of the time, I don't know what to do. They give us the budget, and they ask us to come with specific project how you can help on the ground. So if I can give you any advice, any ideas, any solution, I'd be very, very happy. I know it's not a researcher's question, but that's my, I mean, I don't do much, but that's, that's what I do for work. Yeah, well, I, I guess so. Um, so are, are <clears throat> do you, have you written grants, or you sort of, or your questions sort of had, had to, how to write grants, or? No, no, no. Grants okay, and yeah. we, get, uh, we get funding from USA, uh -huh. from different organizations. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of time, you know, people doing those grants, they, they live here, yeah. uh, either in DC yeah. or California. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. they, and they gave us, the, the, so the, the, every year they come with five or six initiatives, and we just lost them. So there's a big uh, disconnect between people in the headquarters and we people living in Niamey or Timbuktu. And, and my thing is, maybe quickly, I, I was, one day I was, um, because I traveled with my government's passport for security, because I was in security for NGO. And they took me in the Sahel with uh, three other guys. Uh, they, they shot one guy. Um, but when I was talking to them, they had no idea of, of Islam. I mean, the people took us. Mm -hmm. So I can see that what they, what they were learning in those madrasas, it was not really what I knew of Islam. So I talked to my boss and I said, you know, we need to work with madrasas. We need to do something like that. But we just, just, just don't work. I don't know what to do. So that's why I'm looking for ideas. And I'm sorry, but that's not a research question. That's why. Well, I think sort of once we convene, I think you've got 
sort of a whole pool of, of people here to talk to that's can, that can be sort of more useful than, than, than certainly me. <coughs> and I can't speak for Mansoor or, or for Fatima, but I think that that's Okay, um, let me thank the uh, speakers. Uh, this has been a wonderful, wonderful uh, experience for, for us. Uh, it's a pity you, we didn't give you more than 20 minutes. You obviously have a lot to say, but I'm sure the conversation will continue with uh, Professor. And, and I want to again express our, our gratitude uh, for coming to Harvard University School and being part of this. Uh, it's not kind of Thank you very much.